interesting always to feel our deeply interconnected nature and how when we have beautiful weather like this the heat also affects us and when suddenly there's more tiredness when we're suddenly sleeping somewhere new maybe we're not sleeping so much you know just that interconnected nature and how conditioned we are often coming out of our comfort zone or our habitual surroundings really highlights that and as we were a little touching on this afternoon it can bring us to an edge um, which may not always be comfortable but is also very rich very very rich I wasn't planning to say this by the way <laughs> very very rich and it's like to um, quote permaculture design that kind of says the edges are where the richness is if we look at nature it's the places where different things meet <coughs> where there's a real richness and diversity so um, also in our own experience often in, in the places where we meet the edges where we're not in our habitual surroundings or we're not in our comfort zone that there's a possibility of a lot of richness um, to come even when it's not comfortable. So I also just wanted to say, and this is um, on behalf of both of us, that if at any point when we're speaking something isn't clear to you, please feel free to stop us and ask us to, you know, to say something again or to explain more. Um, you know, it might be that um, the English isn't clear or it might be that we're using terminology that you're not familiar with. Um, whatever it is, to kind of please um, overcome the shyness and, and just really feel invited to, to voice that and let, and, and let us know. And it's also usually an act of kindness to, to others because we're probably not the only one. So... Um, yeah, so a real invitation to do that. So, in our in our practice um, over the days, we're really emphasising um, the qualities of insight and mindfulness in, in our practice here, um, and the process of calming the mind so that we can see what what is going on calming the mind so that we can see what is, what is happening and so that we can meet our experience whatever it is that needs some calm, calmness and some mindfulness in order for that to happen and it's the same thing that we're doing with this practice of spaciousness that we were kind of touching on today also through making space or resting into the space we can actually see more clearly what is there so sometimes I like to have this imagery of kind of zooming out and zooming in in order to, to have clarity of, of vision you know sometimes we need to really go into the detail to see what's happening and sometimes we're doing more what we were doing this morning of actually kind of zooming out into the space into that within which everything is is happening and, and known And these qualities of, of insight and mindfulness of calmness that we're slowly cultivating here 
really help us to, to deepen our familiarity with ourselves and with our experience and to deepen our understanding, um, not just of this body-mind phenomena, but through understanding this, we understand more about each other and we understand more about life, actually. The way things are, the way things unfold. And so using the practice and then using the exercises can really illuminate for us um, both our own um, issues, our own patterns, our own um, stuff, and also what we deeply share. Also what we deeply share, and this is really important. And I think the exercise this afternoon was a real teaching in that. When we look, make space for our own stuff, and then open to look at each other, we see how much is shared, how much shared humanity there is. And so this, this seeing both of ourselves, of our own experience, and also of what is shared is really, really vital, it's really important. It's really important if we want to um, reduce or even bring an end to suffering, which is essentially what Dharma teachings are aiming for. You know, a lot of the time we, kind of, we talk about a lot of things to do with, with Dharma teachings, but you know, the Buddha was quite clear about this, what these teachings are for. You know, they, they lead us to the end of suffering, which can seem an incredibly long way away. <laughs> It's also very, very available to us in moments. And perhaps there's been moments like that today. Moments when the, the maybe the, the weight was a little bit less. There was some lightness. Perhaps. Perhaps there'll be some tomorrow. Perhaps there won't. Let's see. But if, if this is what we're interested in, the end of suffering, the individual suffering, the global suffering, global of ourse- the suffering of ourselves, the suffering of others, if, if that's what we're interested in, then this, this process of bringing attention, of seeing what's here, of becoming familiar, is really vital. And so Dharma teachings offer us this, which I've just spoken about, practices of insight, of mindfulness, of, of calming the mind, of seeing more clearly. But they also encourage us to look at qualities that we are developing as we practice. You know, so we're bringing mindfulness or we're bringing spaciousness. And obviously, that is one thing that's being nourished. That's one thing that's being cultivated. But there's also other qualities that we're often less aware of that are being nourished at the same time. And this process is sometimes, I've used this word already, sometimes called cultivation. So there's insight, mindfulness, 
calmness, that whole kind of realm. And then there's cultivation of qualities or attitudes. The Pali, the Pali word is bhavana, which uh, literally means bringing into being. So and it's really, I'm, I like making movements, so it's bringing into being, and giving birth to. And that's, that's the word in Pali that's used in, in, in English, we use cultivation. But I think that bringing into being is really um, very beautiful and really gives us a sense. As we're practicing, as we're here, quiet, silent, doing our simple things of sitting and walking and eating and going to the toilet and doing our tasks, as we're doing that, there's that one avenue of the insight the mindfulness, the calmness that is being nourished. And there's also other, a whole other array of qualities that are being developed. Sometimes it feels like in the background. It's not in the background. They're very, very central. And they're very important because they directly reduce suffering. Directly reduce suffering in the here and now. And so they're really worth um, Kind of turning towards and, and paying attention to and acknowledging. So they directly do suffering in ourselves and in others, and they also really um, bring about well-being and calmness of heart and mind. So this, how does this work? This cultivation of these wholesome qualities or attitudes. How does it actually affect us in our practice? So as I was saying, these are things that are happening as as we're doing the practice anyway. But when we bring intentionality to this bhavana, to this cultivation, to this bringing into being, it really strengthens the process. It really strengthens the process. I mean, we know that, you know, physically there may be certain actions that we do quite regularly, I mean, lifting our arm, and we do that all the time for various reasons. But when we actually bring intentionality into that as an exercise, then the muscles are developed more because we're paying more attention, we're doing it more fully. So this is the same kind of process. And these qualities or attitudes can also really become a resource for us. So when we feel stuck or overwhelmed, stuck in the practice, confused or overwhelmed by whatever is happening in our lives. They can really become a resource by bringing awareness to what is actually being cultivated or nourished in the moment. So a very clear example of that, you know, sometimes we can be feeling very restless, you know, we're sitting here, we're all sitting here, and it just seems like this meditation is going on, you know, forever and ever. Surely, whoever's meant to ring the bell has fallen asleep, or their watch has stopped, or whatever. You know, it's just not possible that you know, forty-five minutes could feel like four hours. And and, and we all know, you know, I'm exaggerating, but we all know that kind of experience. And so we feel we acknowledge the restlessness that's there. It's it's a human quality. It arises in our experience. There's there's restlessness. There's agitation. And then we remember, but what is it that we're doing here? Just by staying, by staying steady with the practice, we're cultivating patience. And so we turn to what is happening. 
You know, because very naturally what we focus, what jumps out, what takes up our attention is the sense of restlessness, agitation, I can't do this. If only I'd started when I was 20 years old, I'd be enlightened by now, or whatever the stories, you know, that go on in our minds as a result. And we just look, okay, so there's restlessness, but what else is here? Cultivation of patience. In every moment, when I don't follow that restless urge of just, you know, getting up and walking out or whatever, Cultivation, uh, cultivation, cultivating patience, it's growing for us. And that can create space and also connect us to the bigger picture of our practice. You know, so that this present, which is unpleasant, that's not all there is, it's part of a bigger picture of our practice, of why we practice connecting us to that fact that practice is an act of kindness. You know, it's something that we're doing out of kindness to ourselves. Even if right now it feels awful. It's an act of kindness towards myself, towards others. And that everything is included in the field of practice. So it's not that if I'm feeling restless or agitated or you know, angry, or judgmental, you know, all these shadow sides of ourselves that we really don't like, that that is outside the field of practice. No, everything, everything is included. Everything is grist for the mill. Everything is fuel, manure, for the work that we're doing. <coughs> and through this kind of different looking, we, we can get some empowerment and some faith in ourselves and our capacity And we start seeing in, in, this, in this wider way. So, this evening I'd like to, to go into a few specific qualities um, that we cultivate through practice and that we can bring intentionality to also as part of our practice. And this particular cluster or group, Buddha, spoke in a lot of lists, which makes sense um, when you think of, of a tradition being oral. You know, everything was spoken, there was no written words, so lists are much easier to memorize. Um, it's still very helpful for us nowadays, even with our Kindles and computers and pen and paper. So he spoke in a lot of lists, and this is a particular list, a particular cluster that I'd like to speak about um, this evening. You know, I'll go into depth in, in, with just a couple of them. Um, and this is a, a group of, of qualities called, um, in Pali, they're called the Paramis. And they're usually um, translated as perfections. In the Theravada tradition, there's ten perfections. In the Mahayana tradition, there's seven, six, six, six. yeah, six. Yeah. So they're usually translated as perfections. But, yeah, like perfections can, can feel a bit perfect, which, um, yeah, for some of us may not sit very, very well, not, not maybe, might not be very useful. 
So a few other ways of understanding the paramas. Uh, one is this connection between parami, the Pali word, and paramount in, in English. I find that quite helpful. Um, which basically means of extreme importance. So these are incredibly important qualities or attitudes. And when look at the at the roots of the Pali word, parami, it's got two possible meanings. Uh, one is is param, it's just the beginning of it, which literally means something that carries us across to the other shore, which is an image that's used in the Buddhist tradition for awakening or spiritual development. So something that, a quality that can liberate us. Again, of extreme importance, these cluster of qualities. They liberate. And another way of, of another possible root of the word is parama, which means foremost. So again, of of, um, of extreme important or importance or of first import, importance, the foremost. They are of foremost importance um, as components of our life's purpose. So how we how we define our life or how we um, navigate our life. And so, like a lot of beautiful things in the teachings, they're relevant to the here and now. You know, so they inform our lives here and now, the choices we make, the priorities we make, how we live, how we practice. And they also have the capacity to liberate. So from the here and now all the way to whatever you imagine awakening is, they, they, they have a place. They play a role. And they're very, very relevant to um, the exploration that we're doing here, which is also really how service is practiced, you know, how that works. And I actually didn't say the whole list. Um, so I will say the ten, even though I'm just going to concentrate on two this evening, because if I tried to cover the whole ten, you would be here till three o'clock in the morning, which is... Uh, if we were in Thailand, that may be the case. But luckily for us, we're here. Or unluckily, depends how much we love the Dharma. So, um, the ten paramis, probably not in the right order. Um, generosity. Um, sila, which is ethics. Wisdom. Um, viriya, which is energy and courage, strength. A lot of different qualities in that power word. Patience, renunciation, determination, truthfulness, or honesty. Okay, I can put them on the board later, or I can also say them slower. How far did you get? Renunciation. Renunciation. Okay. So after renunciation, determination. And then truthfulness or honesty. Metta, which is um, loving kindness um, or unconditional friendliness. And the last one is equanimity. So, 
So this evening I'd like to speak about the first two, generosity and, and sila, and beginning with generosity. Uh, the Pali word is dana, D-A-N-A. And the, the Buddha frequently began his teachings with teachings on, on generosity, very, very frequently and really consider the foundation of the practice and of the spiritual life. And there's two ways that we can um, understand generosity. One is a spontaneous and natural expression of you know, times when we're feeling open, there's an open mind, an open heart, and then that you know, we feel connected to each other, and then there's a natural flow that comes through us. Giving just flows through us, and you know we often have that experience with smiling at people. You know, it's just even you know very much in retreat we often feel that as well. You know, there's just there's a sense of ease or a sense of connection, and then that you know there isn't a thought oh I should be smiling now. It just naturally arises, and we also know that from the receiving side, you know, someone just naturally smiles at us and how that affects. Just this very natural, um, that the quality is already present, out of connection, out of um, a sense of flow. And another way of understanding dana or cultivating dana is a practice that we undertake when this natural flow is not there. And both are equally important. You know, one is noticing when there is that sense of openness, of connectivity. And it's just a flow, a natural movement. A natural movement. And also equally noticing when that isn't there. And then bringing intentionality to the practice. Undertaking it. And so the, the benefits of, of Dharma practice are, are really many. And the primary one I've already mentioned is this, uh, that it connects us to ourselves and to others, very naturally. And it's, it's again, it's a very natural movement, you know, just seeing someone walking towards the door with their hands full. We naturally open the door. We don't think, oh, now I'm going to do an act of generosity and I will open the door to this person. You know, we just naturally do that. And yet we don't stop to appreciate it also. But there is a moment of connection there. There is a moment of, um, of flow between two people, of sharing something. So it really can highlight interconnectedness for us. It also really nourishes well-being and calm. And when the Buddha was asked why, he, he would often start his teachings with teachings on generosity. This is the reason. And he would say, oh, because, you know, I speak, I speak about generosity until I feel that people are in a calm space and they're receptive. And then they can hear the teachings of liberation. Then they can hear the Four Noble Truths or whatever he went on to teach. It's really interesting. I find this really interesting. And it's really worth reflecting in our own experience. 
You know, what happens when there's generosity either offered to us or offered from us? How does that affect our sense of well-being? Practicing generosity of dana when that flow isn't naturally there really highlights to us, shows us where we're closed, where we're holding back, where our edges are, where we're fearful. And this is extremely powerful. Once we see where that edge is, we can often overcome it. I had a a wonderful experience of this in... um, I think it was April, I was teaching a, a retreat in the Indian Himalayas, um, in a place where I, I teach retreats every year. Um, but with climate change, the weather's becoming less and less predictable, and it was unseasonably cold. And so, um, you know, people, particularly people who were traveling in India for a while, were very unprepared. So, you know, there we were, doing a retreat, and we were high in the mountains, um, there's no shops nearby, and, and there's some people who are, you know, a little bit cold. And I'm always afraid of being cold, so I always have a lot of warm clothes. <laughs> and I, I, I was really, you know, knowing that there was this, this one woman um, who was cold. And I was aware that I had these clothes I wasn't using. But this wasn't happening. And so this was an opportunity to to really look, okay, what's going on here? This natural flow of generosity is not happening. So what's blocking it? And so then I could see this fear, you know, what if it's going to get colder? What if the sun's not going to come out and we'll be able to do any washing and I'll have to keep wearing the same thermal underwear for two weeks? You know? I better keep that clean pen so I can change. And so seeing that, you know, now I'm saying it, you know, you're laughing, I was also laughing. You know, just seeing these internal voices and so just seeing that edge really clearly. And then just giving all these extra spare clothes I was keeping for an emergency situation. Just offering them. And the wonderful thing was that for the rest of that retreat, every time I would see this this participant wearing my clothes, I would smile. You know, I'd be happy. Isn't it good? And so that limit that's there, that's actually causing suffering primarily to, to me because I'm contracted, I'm small, suffering when I go beyond it and I see it I go beyond it actually the joy, that's when the joy comes with the, with the sharing so it's a really powerful practice and you know we can we can just with the intention to see well how am I around generosity what is it, very very deep exploration and sometimes, you know, my partner and I would play with also other kinds of practices, you know. What would it be like if, you know, for this month, every time I bought myself a coffee, I also bought one for somebody else? You know, you just play with these things and see what happens. And how, would that, how does that change my sense of separateness, my limitations, 
for this week, every time I have a generous impulse, I'm going to follow up on it. Just really plain. You can be really surprised with, again, a lot of of kindness and and non-judgment. Like Some of the things we'll see will be hard. You know, what I was just sharing, it's, you know, you can dress it up nicely here in this context and you're all very empathetic. But, you know, seeing that I'm going to keep these warm clothes in case I get cold, even though right now I've got enough without them, that's not, it's not a nice thing to see about oneself. So, yeah, with, with kindness, with empathy also towards ourselves. And as I've already touched on, it's really important to remember generosity isn't at all limited to material things. Really important. The most important things, like smiles, (laughs) the smile, the opening of the door, the everyday things that actually make our lives um, much more fluid, aren't material, aren't material generosity. And equally, generosity doesn't need to feel like an edge, necessarily, or doesn't need to feel like a sacrifice. It's also really important to, to remember. It's not like it's, less, it's of less worth if it feels good. This is really important in the context of our service work and our care work. I always remember someone many years ago came on a, on a work retreat that we do in a leprosy community in India um, every year. And at the end of, some, somewhere, sometimes towards the end of the retreat, he said, well, I don't feel like I've given anything to anybody. Because, you know, I, I got up every morning and I was really happy to go and meditate. And I, you know, would finish my meals and I was really happy to go and um, work in the community. So I don't feel like I've given anything. And it's really interesting to see that. If it doesn't feel bad, then it's not... Does it not have value? Yeah. Is, that, is that really the case? So sometimes at the edges and sometimes that flow, that natural flow, and really when that is there, to really see it also as generosity that's flowing through. It's not mine, but it is moving through me. And that's a really beautiful and powerful thing to acknowledge. One of the most beautiful teachings, um, Dharma teachings about generosity are um, the emphasis not on what we do or what we give, but also on how that's done. Also on how that's done. So a real emphasis on generosity being something that we, we do with respect. So how we give, how we offer, how we share really significant and again noticing that opens us up and these experiences of of generosity of giving can then become really transformative so another another story from the leprosy community I've been telling this story in all my Dharma talks recently so don't listen to any recent recordings (laughs) Um, but this happened in the last work retreat in the leprosy community in January. And it was towards the end of our, of our month there. 
Um, and I was, uh, we work in the old people's home when we were there, some, some of us, those who want to. Um, and I was going through the, the different rooms um, in the old people's home um, doing an inventory of um, mosquito repellent machines that we, we, su- we supply for, for the old people every year and the liquid that goes in and just to see which ones were still working, which ones needed to be replaced and things like that. So I was doing an inventory and um, I was using my phone to make a list. So I was walking around with my phone in my hand, you know, making a list of, you know, this room needs a new machine, this room needs this many vials of liquid, whatever. And so I was near the end of this um, inventory taking, and uh, I walked into one of the last rooms in the, in the men's section. And as I was walking into the room, one of the elderly gentlemen was walking out. And, um, and he saw my phone and his whole face lit up. And he asked me if he could make a phone call. And uh, I said, sure. And he wanted to phone his son. He's a beautiful man that I've known for the, probably for the 12 years that I've been going there. Um, very dignified, very tall, and big white beard, dressed in traditional kind of And so he kind of shuffled out to the courtyard and sat down on one of the benches. And... Um, into, in, his, in, in his dhoti, which is the kind of really long piece of cloth that the men wear traditionally, tied up in a corner. It was a little bag with all his precious possessions, and he untied it, took out the bag, and inside were you know, pieces of paper with phone numbers and some rupee notes and the key to his little um, trunk where he keeps his things and all the, all the little valuables, and took out a card with, the phone, with phone numbers and... Um, pointed to the one of his son that he wanted to phone. And it was quite a, it was a whole operation to, to get that phone call happening and some of the other old gentlemen were involved and someone else who was passing by just kind of, um, you know, saying to me, I put it on speakerphone because he couldn't really hear and he would do this, do that. And finally, um, after a few, a few tries, he was there, sat on the bench in the courtyard, talking to his son over speakerphone. And the, the joy in both of the voices. There's no other way for him to phone his son except if someone happens to be there with a mobile phone. Now, most of the old people there can't afford one. There's no pay phone. And so the joy in their, in their voices was just so... I didn't understand the actual conversation, but I didn't need to. It was just like, oh, so powerful. And I was just standing next to him, completely kind of taking it in, (laughs) taking in the joy. And then I looked up, and just a couple of meters away, the other two old guys who had helped it happen were sitting, listening, watching. And their faces were completely radiant with joy as well. That kind of empathetic joy, just joy in their joy. And they were smiling at me and I was smiling at them. And there was just this incredible sense of, of happiness. And when he finished his phone call, he um, you know, thanked me, gave me back the phone. And then he, he reached for his notes and he wanted to pay me. And that moment completely uh, blew me away. 
you know, that, that sense of um, shared experience. You know, of course I, was, I said no. You know, I didn't need those, those rupees. He needed them much more than me. But just, you know, I, I felt that the rest of that day I was walking on air, you know, for something so simple. So simple. But that sense of it's not what we give, but also how we give. And that the respect and the joy that comes through giving. And that sense also that what we are giving, what I'm giving, is not mine. You know, when generosity is really happening, there's not a sense of me giving something or you receiving something. There's just that flow. It really reminded me of what my partner Nathan often says about particularly about the work in the leprosy community. He says it's sharing, not giving. You know, who's who is benefiting more from this exchange? Is it's very difficult to measure. But I would say probably us privileged Westerners are benefiting more from the experience if I had to choose. So it can be really transformative. So, one of the greatest gifts that we can offer to each other is the gift of fearlessness. And this is also a real emphasis on what is generosity, the gift of fearlessness. As, we, as our practice deepens, as we become more rooted in, in wisdom and ethics, other beings have less reason to fear us. That's an incredible gift that we can offer to the world and to ourselves. And one description in, in Dharma teachings of someone who's awakened is one who dispels or dissolves the fear of others. Someone who, by their presence, dissolves fear, which is quite fantastic. And this aspect of, of dana, of generosity, really connects us to the second parami that I wanted to touch on today, which is sila. And I mentioned it yesterday when I was speaking about, about non-harming. And so sila is, um, again, the root of the word comes from bed or bedrock. I mentioned that yesterday. It's another foundation with dana, with generosity, the two foundations of, of spiritual practice. And it's an extremely profound practice. It's usually translated as virtue or ethics. And we have to be really aware of how these words meet us. You know, in, in our... Um, in our social, con- social conditionings, these words of virtue um, and, and ethics, or sometimes it's translated as morality, that's even more difficult, really have the connotation of kind of black and white, good and bad, wrong and right, has kind of a real connotation of absolutes. And so we really have to take care then, and to, to be aware of what our conditioning is, but not to apply it to, to this practice. Um, and to really, you know, I find much more 
and the use of, of practice of, of fearlessness, cultivating um, to, to become someone that does not um, create fear in others. Really, really helpful. Or um, non-harming, really rooted in non-harming. And sometimes, um, for me, it's what I kind of see it as is, is the practice of becoming a safe zone. Yeah, really knowing this is a safe zone. This is a peacekeeping zone. And that's the practice to become that, somewhere where everyone can feel safe. And so the real encouragement in, in Dharma teachings is to really not fall into that dichotomy of good and bad, right and wrong, do's and don'ts. But rather to, to observe, to investigate, and to learn for ourselves which actions lead to suffering. Which actions lead to suffering. And which actions lead to happiness and freedom. In what conditions? You know, the same action can lead to different results in different situations. So it's a real process of investigation and learning rather than guilt, shame, shoots. And it's a real question that we can apply. You know, is this, does this action, does this speech, does this thought... Is it leading to suffering or the end of suffering? Where is it leading? Can I see? Can I really open to that? For myself and for others, where is it leading? And so the Buddha offered um, this practice of sila, and particularly the precepts, the five areas I mentioned yesterday. as a support to us in this investigation of what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness or to the end of suffering. And he spoke of them as training rules. So again, you know, they're training rules. They're not absolute rules. They're areas we investigate. So what happens if instead of following our impulses, we actually hold back and bring some mindfulness, bring some attention. Look at what's happening. Often we we meet an underlying discomfort that's there, that's fueling the impulse to do something. And then we, we use that time, that gap that we create by not reacting and just observing. We use that time to see, well, where is this leading? What can I learn about myself and about my reactions? What can I learn about my motivations, about the consequences of my actions? So I had an experience recently um, on a retreat I was teaching. There were quite a few mosquitoes and... um, I was, I was finding, you know, I wasn't, um, yeah, it was again very interesting. It was like, oh, I'm just flicking them off. You know, I'm not killing them. <laughs> I'm not killing them, I'm just flicking them off. 
question again, just seeing the mind, you know, just seeing the mind. But what is that flicking them off? What is that nourishing? Is that leading to suffering? Or is that leading to the end of suffering? Really observe, really look. That's reactivity. That's pushing away. You know, that's, that's moving from, from fear. That's what it is. So just looking. And so one, one time, actually my co-teacher was giving a talk, which was very interesting, but um, I noticed a mosquito land on my arm. And I decided that I was actually going to shift my attention from the talk to just staying steady with, with the mosquito, the experience of the mosquito on my arm. And I actually found that looking at it was helpful to not do this, to not flick it off. And I, I just found that physically looking and then observing the sensations was incredible. You know, just, okay, some discomfort, a <laughs> bit of itchiness, more. Why isn't it flying away already? You know, hasn't it had enough? And just watching the, the stories in the mind. But then the capacity to actually stay with it. You know, mosquito bite is not a dramatic, dramatically painful experience. Very mildly irritating. And so just staying with that, staying with that, staying with that. And really see the conditioning and then that allows me not to feed it, not to, to feed the mosquito, not to feed the conditioning of the reactivity. Again, cultivating non-harming, cultivating generosity, cultivating patience. Just in that simple act of observing what's actually here. So, you know, even very simple things, we can learn a lot about how we operate on a day-to-day level. So, one way that the Buddha referred to sila, as I said, is, is in the precepts, is training rules. And another way that he referred to it, to the, to the precepts, is um, qualities of a person who's spiritually well-developed. So these are qualities that are well-developed in a person who's spiritually well-developed. Yeah. There's an American teacher, Gil Fronsdale, who talks about sila, I really love this, as ethical sensitivity. So we're nourishing this ethical sensitivity in this practice of sila. And so what we see is that the greater our capacity for being present, for being mindful, for being attentive to the world and ourselves, the greater that capacity, the more that grows, the greater our understanding and empathy of each other is. The greater our understanding and empathy is, the less harm we will cause to ourselves and others. You see that connection? But it also works the other way. It's really interesting. It's all cycles that feed each other. So as we deepen our capacity for empathy, as we deepen our capacity to see the other, as we deepen our capacity for compassion, for understanding, so our presence and attentiveness grow. And that also nourishes our ability to be present, our ability to pay attention, our ability to see deeply. And also our fearlessness grows. The more we cultivate the safe zone, the more 
we prioritize being a space, being a presence that does not cause fear. The more we nourish fearlessness in ourselves as well. So the, the work, the practice we're doing here, you know, of, of doing service, of doing care, of giving our time, our energy, whatever capacity to others, it's not easy. It has a lot of challenges. And these practices, these qualities, these paramis of sila and dana can really be a resource for us. They can really connect us to our own goodness and our own kindness and also to the priority that we're giving to that. Priority that we're giving to that. And it can become a real refuge for us. From the more intimate, personal challenges to the bigger ones that we face in our interactions with others and with the world. And when I was making these notes earlier today, I was really reflecting on how much, how clear the value of Sila is, of Dana is, when we look at our world and we see <laughs> to what degree it's lacking. You know, and that can really, not in a way to bring us down, but to actually really connect us to how important these qualities are and what service we're doing to the world when we're nourishing and cultivating them in ourselves. When we're creating this kind of space, we're there at the center and we prioritize. like to end with one short example of experience again. And this was in, um, in Palestine in October last year. Um, I was there also a work retreat that we organize to help Palestinian farmers um, harvest their olives in areas that they have difficulty accessing. And it so happened that our retreat started just a few days after um, the beginning of a kind of a wave of violence in the area, which no one knew how that was going to develop. And so while we were in the village, the Palestinian village where we stay, this just an experience I had one night um, when we had finished our last meditation and we were out in the garden brushing our teeth. And as I was brushing my teeth, I was noticing, I noticed that there were lights kind of erupting in the sky. Um, and I recognized that having grown up in Israel. That's flares that the military sends up into the sky. Um, usually it means that they're on the move somewhere, not far away. And they'd been, just in the preceding days, the, the army had come into the village once or twice, I can't remember now. Um, and also the, some Jewish settlers had come in a couple of times. 
to both of these situations where there's a potential for violence to erupt. And so I went to bed knowing that, you know, seeing the flares, knowing that maybe some violence was, was either happening somewhere already or was, or, was, or was going to happen very close by, very soon. And of course also fear arose in that situation, very naturally. You know, fear for my Palestinian friends, fear for myself, fear for, for the people in, in the group that I felt responsibility for if something happened. And the fear was, was fairly strong, you know, was a fairly strong sense of, of fear, just lying there on the mattress on the floor, um, not much possibility of doing anything, no car to run away in, um, no one to contact, to, to change, you know, ha- haven't got the, work, the, the ear of any military generals to convince them to do something else, so not much to do except lie there and be with the experience and feel the fear. And what arose really strongly because of the strength of the intentionality of the practice, of going, you know, I didn't just happen to be in Palestine, the strong intentionality of bringing friendship, of bringing peace, so which we just called being peace. Bringing peace, bringing calm, bringing understanding, bringing friendship into the situation. And what I discovered was that within that fear, this intentionality was a real refuge. It was somewhere I could rest into, of really connecting to why I was there on the deepest level, and knowing that that was of supreme importance to me. That was vital. So even though all I was doing was lying in bed, not being able to change anything externally, that possibility to be present, that possibility to be clear about this wish to bring peace, to bring non-harming, to bring friendship into situations of injustice and of violence and of aggression. It was so powerful. A real resting place. I actually fell asleep, which is pretty amazing. But through that, that whole experience, the whole two weeks, this is just one kind of one powerful short experience of that moment. It was really palpable. That it may seem that there's nothing we can do. It may seem that something is beyond us, beyond our capacity. We can always be present with what really matters to us and hold that, whatever it is, with love, with friendship, with an intention for safety and peace for all beings. And, and that matters. It makes a difference. So, we'll end with that, and we'll just have a, a quiet moment together, just bring this to a close.
practice together continue to nourish fearlessness in ourselves and in all beings and we continue to create spaces of safety and of well-being through who we are and how we are May all beings find freedom from suffering and live compassionately and kindly, sharing this one world together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.